Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It For was the day. best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, I am really excited to tell you that I have a comment from Facebook. And it's probably one of the best comments I've received, uh, certainly in a while. And uh, I'm really happy about that Facebook page is really uh, working for us, and it's really instructing you as well. But this is a comment from Jeff from Delaware. And he wrote me on Facebook, I really enjoy your program. The entire series on Joseph Conrad's novels has been excellent. I have been devoted to reading classic literature since my college days late in the 70s. Now, uh, I was in college in the early 70s, so he's probably a little bit older than I am. He says, I think this is because a philosophy professor challenged us on the first day of class saying we were illiterate. He explained we were illiterate because we may not know how to read. No, excuse me. He explained we were illiterate because we may know how to read, but we did not know what to read. I have been trying to prove him wrong ever since. Conrad was one of his favorite authors, by the way. The only downside to me reading and enjoying the classics is that I seldom encounter anyone who has read or is interested in reading the same books I do. Because of your podcast, I now have a kindred and a literate soul in reading great literature. Keep up the good work. Well, if you all keep listening, I'll be keeping at it, keeping doing uh, the work. And, of course, I love the classics. And we'll be having meetings in the next couple of weeks about uh, uh, what we're going to continue with for, uh, let's say, maybe later in the summer and early fall. And, of course, after we finish this book, we're going to be getting into probably one of the best American classics there is, and that is Moby Dick. And so I'm really looking forward to finishing that as well. Now, on our last podcast, we, uh, we began, and when I say we, as my wife and I, Deborah, and I began discussing Jim's dinner engagement with Marlo. And so, it's, it's, uh, again, this is the first time I'm reading this book, so I've been full of, uh, or maybe uh, have been experienced a lot of surprises. Never in my mind that I would dream that Marlo and Jim would have dinner at a very nice restaurant. But anyway, what I want to do today is to continue that discussion. Now, my partner in literature could not be here with me today, so uh, uh, I promise Deborah will be back next time. So I'm going to have to do all this talking myself today. Now, as I said uh, during several podcasts, there is much to unpack in these early chapters. And uh, um, there's a lot more exciting things to come. Now, I think it's important to mention also at this point that Conrad is going to use Marlowe's dinner discussion with Jim to finally give us the details about what happened on the Patna. And I think that's a unique way of doing it. I know uh, um, I'm not a cheater. I didn't read chapters ahead. I just read them as they come. And uh, I just wondered, when are we going to get to the Patna? When are we going to get to it? Well, never would I have imagined we get to it at the dinner. 
and so uh, I remember Jim eats a lot, and uh, uh, of course Marla was paying the bill, and he he mentions that by the way. Now, um, one of the other thing that's going to happen, and and we probably have all forgotten about it, but the uh, the frame narrator, and if you uh, go back and study your first four chapters. It's not Marlowe talking. It's the frame narrator talking. He's the one that gave us the first four chapters, and then he graciously turns it over to Marlowe. But uh, in the next couple uh, chapters, and I, I think we'll be able to get to all this today, uh, that uh, frame narrator appears briefly. He just uh, just wants to let us know he's still there. And uh, I'll explain that as we get into it uh, on today's program. Now, Again, I just want to encourage you, if you're, if you're struggling with reading, there's a few things that are a little confusing that I think we're going to try and clear up today. And uh, uh, don't quit. Don't walk out of the movie. Keep going because there's a lot more excitement to come in this book. And so I know I can't wait to get there, and so I can't wait to have you go with me. Now, <clears throat> last time we were on page 59... We were just finishing up with this. This is where uh, uh, they had started to have dinner, and, and Jim was drinking a little bit of wine, kind of loosened his, his uh, as uh, Marlowe says, it opened his heart, loosened his tongue. And so, so he began talking about uh, not only the inquiry, but what, what began to happen on the Patna. And, uh, of course, uh, as in Conrad's style, he does, uh, at the very top of page 59, give us extra details uh, just to make it uh, the whole scene come alive for us. A lot of people get frustrated with uh, you know, his discussion of the octagon tables and the candles and all that. But that's just to show, uh, kind of give us these visuals to make us feel like we're really there and we're really, really listening. But the, the, the thing is, we have to understand that, that Jim, even though he's having dinner with Marlo, he's, he's really uh, uptight about what's going on with the inquiry. And, uh, and so the, they're having this conversation about, you know, what happened there. And, and uh, uh, you know, Jim begins to, to tell us that uh, the skipper and everybody else is ready to abandon ship, but he, he, would, he did not want to do that. So this is uh, the second paragraph down. He says, I couldn't clear out, Jim began. The skipper did, and that's all very well for him. I couldn't and I wouldn't. They all got out of it in one way or another, but I wouldn't do for, but that, excuse me, but it wouldn't do for me. So, so uh, here, uh, Conrad is giving us a little bit of insight into certainly uh, Jim's character, and uh, he, he does he does seem to have a lot of character, and we're going to we're going to talk about that some more during this uh, this podcast or this this section of the book. And then Marlowe comes right back, and uh, he begins to to uh, make an assessment of Jim's state of mind at this time. And again, we know he's got the the beautiful blue eyes. We know he's blonde. He has blonde hair. We know that that he's tall. He's uh, he's really. Uh, you know, I would think if you know anything about British history, uh, a tall, blonde, blue-haired, you know, very manly king is what all British people wanted. And so, uh, you know, so so we know some of the out, the outside of Jim, but what about the inside? And uh, the very next paragraph down, Marlon begins to say, I listened with concentrated attention, not daring to stir in my chair. I wanted to know. 
And to this day, I don't know. I get. I can only guess. So, so what did he want to know? Well, he wanted to know what makes Jim tick. What's really going on inside Jim? And it's in many ways. This is totally uh, Conrad's. I, I think it's it's his natural um, way he thinks. And I think if we'd have known Conrad, Conrad, he would be talking a lot about human nature. He'd be talking about what goes on inside men's hearts and their brains. And so this is what what uh, he wants to know. And and he says to this day. And so, you know, as you're reading this, well, we could read it like this has just happened yesterday. He says, uh, I don't know, I can only guess. He goes on to say, he's talking about Jim, he, he would be confident and depressed all in the same breath, as if, some con- as if some conviction of innate blamelessness had checked the truth writhing within him at every turn. He began by saying in the tone which a man would admit his inability to jump a 20-foot wall, that he would never go home now, and this declaration recalled to mind what Briarly had said. And so now he's taking us back, and remember, we talked about this, I think, on the last podcast, or maybe the one before that, that Briarly knew Jim's dad. And he says, uh, he said, at this declaration, recall to my mind what Briarly had said, that the old parson in Essex seemed to fancy his sailor son not a little. And so, so... Here, um, you know, Marlowe has some information on Jim. He got it from Briarly. And, uh, uh, you know, his father was very well thought of. He says, um, uh, uh, in the very next paragraph down, he says, I can't tell you whether Jim knew he was especially fancied. And so, so uh, like his, it sounds like his, uh, if I remember correctly, the, uh, there were seven in the family. And uh, he probably, the father probably did not want to show favoritism. And I tried very hard to do that with my four daughters, is not show favoritism. But, uh, but the, the parson really did fancy Jim. He was really proud of his son. And he said, uh, he said um, well, let me just repeat this. He said, I can't tell you whether Jim knew he was especially fancied. But the tone of his references to my dad was calculated to give me a notion that the good old world dean was about the finest man that had ever been worried by the cares of a large family since the beginning of the world. This, though never stated, was implied with anxiety that there should be no mistake about it, which was really very true and charming, but added a poignant sense of lives or lives far off to the other elements of the story. He has seen it all in the home papers by this time, said Jim. So essentially what, what Marlowe is communicating here to us, the readers, is that Jim, because of what happened on the patent, and it's, we still don't know exactly what's happened. We know there's, we're getting some, some ideas. But Jim was embarrassed by what happened. And he's embarrassed that he's on, well, the, the judgment stand and inquiry. And uh, he's, he's really trying to really stand up for his own personal character, but he, he's afraid to go home. And, uh, uh, you know, what's he going to do after the inquiry's over? And uh, here's what he says about his dad. He says, he's seen it all in the home papers by this time. 
He says, I can never face the poor old chap. I did not dare to lift my eyes at this till I heard him add, I can never explain. He wouldn't understand. So so there's some something that's happened on the Patna that Jim is so embarrassed about that he cannot go home and face his dad. Now, if he really knew his dad, his dad would probably overlook it if he heard all the facts. And so that's what, what we need to hear now is all the facts. And <clears throat> Marla goes on to say, then I looked up. He was smoking reflectively, and after a moment, rousing himself, began to talk again. He discovered at once a desire that I should not confound him with his partners in crime, let us call it. He was not one of them. He was altogether of another sort. Now, now here, this is Jim defending himself, but Marlowe, if you remember to our last podcast, he already said he's one of us. And so he, he never saw Jim as one of them. So, so what we have to do, if, if you're really thinking about what you're reading, is, uh, is if we were sitting right there with Marlowe, and if we knew what Marlowe knows about Jim to this point, we'd probably say the same thing Marlowe is saying. He was not one of them. Now, um, you know, he, he was one of us. He's one of, well, the people that have character and the people that do things the right way. But it says, he was, uh, he was altogether of another sort. I gave no sign of dissent. I had no intention for the sake of barren truth to rob him of the smallest particle of any saving grace that would come his way. Now, <clears throat> if you remember back when, uh, when Briarly and uh, Marlowe were talking, they, they said that the whole inquiry was, well, it was horrible. Uh, they knew that the, the, the inquirers were just going after Jim. Uh, they, they knew that it was abominable. And so, so uh, what Marlowe here is telling us, the reader, well, he's not going to, going to, uh, you know, you know, chomp on his character. He's not going to, to try and destroy it. Uh, he said, but I didn't know how much of it he believed himself. I didn't know what he was playing up to, if he was playing up to anything at all. And so, so he he does not see him as a criminal or a character like that. And uh, you know, uh, playing up is a is a um, term that you would find more in uh, countries of the British Empire. I heard it the first time in my life uh, in New Zealand. I visited New Zealand and I visited Australia as well. And uh, when, when a child is misbehaving, usually the parents say he's playing up. So, so the, the point here, um, readers out there, is that, that the, you know, Marlowe is saying, I don't suspect he was doing anything bad. You know, was he playing up? He wasn't sure, but he didn't suspect that he was. He says, uh, he said, and I suspect he did not know either. For it is my belief no man ever understands quite his own artful dodges to escape from the grim shadow of self-knowledge. I made no sound that uh, uh, all the time he was wondering what he had better do after that stupid inquiry was over. And so the, so the point is, that those three lines are, well, Marlowe is saying them, but that's total Conrad. And, you know, there, there is some self-examination that he wants us to do in this book. 
And I really believe uh, Lord Jim would be a great book for anyone in a leadership position. I, I wish more of our politicians would read this book. And uh, certainly heads of, uh, you know, uh, the major companies in this country is, is uh, you know, are, are you one of us or are you one of them? And uh, yeah, let, let me just repeat this. He says, and I suspect he did not know either, for it is my belief no man ever understands quite his own artful dodges to escape from the grim shadow of self-knowledge. And so, so do we really know our hearts? Do we really know what our minds are? Do we really know what our intentions are? You know, sometimes we're put in a situation that reveals a really bad side to ourselves. And did we ever suspect it would be there? I know... You know, as a young boy and uh, as a young man, there are things happened to me that I was surprised and shocked that I was involved in it, but it just seems to happen. And so, but, but notice, Marlowe says the inquiry was stupid, so it seems like he is beginning to uh, certainly in, uh, agree with Briarly. And then also, I think what we need to find out or we need to uh, discover or say is that, that uh, Jim also feels the whole inquiry was stupid. Now, uh, Conrad just goes on to say, and, and this is in response to the question, and y you can see where Marlowe is a little bit older, a little bit more mature. He's been in the, the shipping industry. You know, he's, he's uh, commanded ships. And uh, you can hear the question like a father saying, okay, Jim, what are you going to do now? What are you going to do after the inquiry? Because... He was going to lose everything. He was going to lose his certificate. He was going to lose, you know, his status that he had gained. And uh, the next paragraph down, he says, apparently he shared Barley's contemptuous opinions of these proceedings ordained by law. He would not know where to turn, he confessed, clearly thinking aloud rather than talking to me. Certificate gone, career broken, no money to get away, no work that could obtain, that he could obtain as far as he could see. At home, uh, he could perhaps get something, but it meant going to his people for help, and that he would not do. He saw nothing for for it but ship before the mast. Could get perhaps a quartermaster, and so so in other words, he, he's thinking, well, I could get, I could probably still work on a ship as a quartermaster, and if you look up what a quartermaster does, a quartermaster, uh, he's kind of like a servant to the chief mate and the skipper. And so, so he would definitely, you know, step down uh, in promotion. And then notice what, uh, if, you, if you're reading, again, this is page 60. Do you think you would? I asked pity, pitilessly. Well, that really got the gym. He says he jumped up and going to the stone balustrade, looked out over into the night. In a moment, he was back, towering above my chair with his youthful face, clouded yet by the pain of a conquered emotion. He had understood very well. I did not doubt his ability to steer a ship. And so, so you know, he's come back and he's got all these emotion, and it's the emotion of his loss. I mean, and, and as we go through this uh, and we find out what really happened on the Patna, some of it was way beyond his control. Remember, he wasn't the skipper. Uh, he was the chief mate. But the skipper was really a coward. And the two engineers that were with him, was a cow they were cowards. And so, so he's definitely in a lot of pain of emotion. 
He goes on, he said, he'd understood very well, did not doubt his ability to steer a ship. In a voice that quavered a bit, he asked me, why did I say that? I had been no end kind to him. I had not even laughed at him when here he began to mumble. That mistake, you know, made a confounded ass of myself, I broke in, by rather saying warmly that for me such a mistake was not a matter to laugh at. He sat down and drank deliberately some coffee, emptying the small cup to the last drop. Does that not mean I admit for a moment the cap uh, uh, fitted, he declared distinctly. No, I said. No, he affirmed the quiet decision. Do you know what you would have done? Do you? And you don't think yourself, he gulped something, you don't think yourself a, a, a cur? And so here we come back to the cur story. So he's got a pretty pretty uh, low opinion of himself at this point. And so, uh, uh, you know, it, it, we still don't know a lot of what happened, but we're getting there, and it's obviously really eating at, at poor Jim. And uh, if you go, uh, if we just stay on page 60, go to the bottom, it says, and with this, upon my honor, he looked up at me inquisitively. It was a question that appears a bona fide question. However, he didn't wait for the answer. Before I could recover, he went on with his eyes straight before him as if reading off something written on the body of the night. It is all in being ready. I wasn't not not then. I don't want to excuse myself, but I would like to explain. I would like somebody to understand. Somebody, one person at least. You. Why not you? And so, so uh, you can see that Jim, he wants to tell the story. He, he wants to say what happened to him. And it, it's really uh, for uh, uh, anybody out there, he wants to confess to somebody. He wants absolution for what happened. Uh, Marla goes on to say it was solemn and a little ridiculous too as they always are those struggles of an individual trying to save from the fire of his idea of what his moral identity should be this present precious notion of a convention only one of the rules of the game nothing more but all the same so terribly affected by an assumption of unlimited power over natural instincts by awful penalties of its failure and so so again, now his, uh, his real story begins and, and what's going on. But that's a scene when, when he says there that it's like he was uh, reading something written on the body of the night. That reminds me of the introductions to Star Wars when you see the, the story coming up in the sky. So again, I still think Conrad would be a great movie director. All right. Um, <clears throat> essentially what, what's going on here is Jim wants to save his moral reputation, and he needs someone to talk to. He needs someone that will, um, uh, you know, help him along the way. Now, I don't want to get into every little detail here. Or we'll spend weeks on these uh, next, oh, maybe five to ten pages. But uh, I think it's interesting, that from what we know to this point, Marlo, uh, Marlo says, Jim's state of mind, he's confident and depressed at the same time. So he's really struggling. Uh, he's too embarrassed to go home and face his father. You know, he's he'll rather he'd rather stay in the poorhouse than go home. He's thinking of maybe, uh, you know, getting on a um, uh, as on another ship as a quartermaster, which would be a real real downturn for him. And so uh, uh, 
the, the thing is we have to remember, and I'm not necessarily going to go back there, but remember uh, on page 59, we, we find out that, that Jim's father really um, had a stunning character, and uh, certainly Jim doesn't feel he can measure up even to his father's character. And so, so uh, you know, that's what's really going on there. But again, we're told here that Jim was not one of them, meaning the skipper and the crew, and that he still, I, I think uh, we have to admit that Marlowe still sees him as having real character. All right. Um, so, so again, um, Jim wants to confess, and uh, uh, obviously, um, you know, he, he, uh, he even Marlowe feels that's a little bit absurd. All right, so let's, I'm going to skip ahead now to page 60. 65. Well, you might find, you might, as you go through this, don't, don't miss any of these pages. Uh, on page 62, it's revealed that the, bulk, the bulkhead held, that the ship really wasn't flooding with water. And so, so that's, that's an important um, thing. Everybody is uh, so afraid the ship is sinking, and it's, it's really not. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, in some ways, that's kind of, kind of frustrating. Uh, but, but I want to skip down to page 65, and this gives us some some uh, deep insight, I think, into to Jim and what was going on. Um, and, and again, this is still this conversation that's going on at dinner, so this, this conversation goes on for pages. So, but at page 65, at the second paragraph, uh, this is Marlowe, he says, I saw clearly as I see you now that there, oh wait, no, sorry, this isn't Marlowe, this is Jim. Jim, he said, I saw clearly as, as I see you now that there was nothing I could do. It seemed to take all life out of my limbs. I thought I might just as well stand where I was and wait. I did not think I had many seconds. Suddenly, the steam ceased blowing off. The noise, he remarked, had been distracting. But silence at once became intolerably, intolerably oppressive. And so, so in some ways, what happened to Jim on this is he just got frozen. He got frozen by the emergency. And if you remember back to the earlier part of the book, um, you know, when he was in training, he did the same thing. He froze. And it just by, just by the, the emergency of it all, um, uh, he says, I thought I, I would choke before I got drowned, he said. He protested he did not think of saving himself. The only distinct thought formed, vanishing and reforming in his brain was... 800 people and seven boats. 800 people and seven boats. And so, so Jim was trying to figure out how could he save 800 people with only seven boats. And remember now, the skipper, and he's going to talk about this a little bit more, but the skipper and the two engineers, they were trying to, to uh, get a boat down so they could save themselves. They weren't interested in saving 800 people. And uh, he, he goes on to say, somebody was speaking aloud inside my head. He said a little wildly, 800 people in seven boats and no time? Just think of it. Now, uh, Marla says, he leaned towards me across the little table, and I tried to avoid his stare. Do you think I was afraid of death? He asked in a voice, uh, very fiery, fierce and low. He brought down his open hand with a bang that made the coffee cups dance. I'm ready to swear I was not. I was not. No. He hitched himself right up and crossed his arms, and his chin fell upon his breast. So, so again, can you imagine 
you know, when you think a ship is 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 uh, sinking, and here the skipper and the two engineers are trying to get a boat down and, and leave, you know, 800 people behind. And uh, you know, that's that's really that's what he was dealing with. And so uh, I want to skip over now. Uh, just just listen to that refrain: 800 people on seven boats. That would drive you crazy. Um, the, the the thing is. One of the things I think we have to learn about Jim and, and really appreciate is he, he really did want to help people. Uh, page 66, this, this all gets reiterated right in the middle of the page. It's a little hard to, I mean, his paragraph's so long, it's hard to pick it up, but I'll just read it. It says, he was not afraid of death, perhaps, but I'll tell you what, he was afraid of the emergency. His confounded imagination had evoked him all the horrors of panic, the trampling rush, the pitiful screams, boats swamped, all the appalling incidents of a disaster at sea he had ever heard of. He might have been resigned to die, but I suspect he wanted to die without terrors, quietly in a sort of peaceful trance. And so, so you know, that's, remember the very beginning of the book, Jim had this amazing imagination. And so, so he, he's, he's not looking for the right facts. In other, word, in other words, the bulkhead, the, the, the ship really wasn't sinking. But he was imagining what was going to be happening. He imagined these 800 people just in a panic. He, he imagined 800 people, you know, trying to jump into boats. He imagined the disaster that would be. And that's what really, that's what really, uh, well, let's say made his, uh, his legs knock. And, uh, you know, it, um, it, it was really, you know, in, in, in some ways too bad. Now, that actually brings us to chapter 8. And uh, here we are. Again, we're running out of time. And I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop with that today. And uh, um, we're going to pick up Chapter 8 next time. And uh, so you can read ahead. Maybe read Chapters 8 through 10. And I'll make sure my wonderful wife comes back with me. So that's all the time we have for today's program. Next time, Deborah and I will continue to discuss Marlowe and Jim's dinner, and we'll be doing it with Chapter 8. So make sure you read Chapters 5 uh, through 7. Now, you can buy Lord Jim at Amazon.com. You may be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. You may be also able to find a copy in your local bookstore, and of course, you can also check your local library. Please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. Now, you can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for Just the Best Literature. Now, you can also send me comments on Facebook. So I'd really love for you to do it. Let's get those comments coming in. And again, this is a great series. I'm happy to do it. So until next time, keep reading. been listening to just the best literature on trumpet radio 101.3 kpcg streaming online at kpcg.fm and the trumpet.com